0: As we have been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, I titled the series Authentic Discipleship. That's the the big deal for the church. That's the great commission given to us to make disciples. And this book, I think, in some very helpful ways, Describes some key principles that are involved in the working of that out. We're seeing Paul discipling sometimes when it's not going well. We're seeing him walk through, over a period of time, a situation and circumstances with people. In the midst of that, we can learn some things about discipleship. We've learned, for instance, that discipleship is life on life. You cannot be discipling if you're not engaged and involved with others at a life-on-life level. It doesn't happen. Discipleship doesn't happen so much in a big group Sunday morning worship as it does in a small group, like a growth group setting, maybe gathered around a table or or sitting together and opening God's Word together and being real with one another, maybe one-on-one over coffee. Authentic discipleship is life on life. Authentic discipleship leans toward the future. It brings that glorious destiny into a little sharper focus into today. And what difference does that make into daily life in this day? It, it, it cares about others. It's gospel-centered in the fact that, that, that I know where home is. I know the basis on which I'm accepted, and I want to bring somebody else with me. Authentic discipleship is discipling somebody else in that grand ambassadorship. Chapter 5, authentic discipleship is based on grace. Chapter 6, it's not on our merit, it's not on our standing, it's not on our behavior, but it's God's work and God's grace to us and in us. And authentic discipleship calls us to be different, calling one another to be different. Different, not distant, not isolated from people around us, engaging together and engaging with others, and yet being different in the ways that God calls us to be unique and different. And that being different, well, sometimes we will point out to one another. Sometimes we'll engage with one another, life on life, in some corrective way, in our being different, in ways that lean toward our glorious destiny, lean toward eternity, even in the present. So all of these aspects, this walking together, this life in Christ together, authentic discipleship is going to involve correcting and being corrected. Authentic discipleship is not afraid to connect or correct or be correct. It is willing to correct, to confront, to be corrected, to be confronted. Even in the midst of that difficulty, that trouble, that grief, if I can say it that way, that that grief brings joy. One of the things we'll see as we open and unpack this chapter a little bit is is there was great grief here. This was a hard process that Paul is now pulling back and giving us sort of a bigger picture view of. There was a process of grief. There was grief involved, and yet that grief has brought joy. It's brought joy for Paul. It's brought joy for those that he was involved in correcting. Correcting. And it has brought joy to others who were simply observing what was happening and who knew that this thing could, could blow up and be ruinous. And yet, look what God has done in the midst. And so there was joy out of that grief. There was joy all the way around. I want you to think back to uh, maybe it's a recent, maybe it's a past, maybe it's still a bit of a raw hurt, a time Oh, let's, let's, let's uh, be a little daring. Within church circles, you were hurt or you were offended. Who do they think they are saying something like that to you? They're not the boss of you. What, what, what gives them the right to point out your faults? Or maybe you were the one trying to give some direction, maybe correction, there was a confrontation with somebody else and it didn't go well. What happened out of that? Is the relationship still good? Is the relationship solid? or Was there a bit of a pulling back? Was there a bit of a withdrawal? Was there a, um, a pulling away a little bit from one another, turning in another's direction, sometimes moving even to another church? It's much easier to quietly withdraw from confrontation than it is to engage. It's easier to quietly withdraw than it is to say something. It's easier to withdraw into our hurt than to actually receive what somebody else is bringing to me. This passage describes this process between Paul and the Corinthians in ways that we can learn something from it. How can we confront well or correct well? How can we receive correction well in ways that will move from grief to joy? Nobody wants the grief. Grief. And yet there's something about, there's something positive about giving grief to one another. There's something in this chapter that gives you the permission. And some of you are, are waiting for it. Some of you can't wait to get to that point where I'm going to say, go give grief to somebody. You're going to say, I'm on it. But to what end? And by what means that that grief can bring joy. God's joy. God's joy that would flourish among his church and between believers as a result of him working in us and through us. Now, I should give a disclaimer. When the pastor talks about conflict, when the pastor talks about confronting, some of you might think I'm talking about you and I've got some issue with you. I've got more issues with me than I've got with you. Trust me. So don't hear it in that sense There might always be issues and perceptions within a church family. There were certainly lots of issues between Paul and the Corinthian church. Lots swirling there. And yet out of that we have the Corinthian letters which are a blessing to us. But I want us to look at the text this morning. I want to encourage you to to hear from the text. It's not me trying to speak to you about some agenda. But let's hear what God has to say to us here. If it confronts you, then let it confront you. It has confronted me. It has called me to confession already this week, this passage. And I can say that in that process, it's called me to a new joy. And God wants that not merely in my situation, but in yours and in yours. God wants that for us as a church together that we can strengthen one another, sharpen one another, receive direction, even correction from one another in our walk together because we're willing to hear from God, even through one another, that sometime grief can bring joy. Now I have on the back of your notes this morning, I have on the back side a, a history, a, a timeline sort of, or just an order of events of Paul's contact with the Corinthians. I'm not going to read all the way through that, but I want to give you just the, the Cliff Notes highlight version. This is compiled out of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in the book of Acts, different mentions about Paul's travel, and, and, and it helps make sense out of what's happening and what's described and what, what he refers to here in chapter 7. So first of all, round about Acts chapter 18, Paul's first visit to corinth he 's there about a year and a half, and there are some some troubles along the way he's vindicated the Lord meets him there and it's a it's a good start to the church in Corinth. He departs from there via Ephesus, returns to Antioch, he sees the great potential in Ephesus as well on his next journey, the third journey he's going to camp in Ephesus and he's going to spend a lot of time there but while he while he's um, um, away from Corinth, after that first visit, he writes to us what's called a previous letter that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. It seems to have some correction to it, but we're not told that much about it. He writes that early in his, in his stay in Ephesus on his third journey. Well, a, 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 a delegation, three people, apparently, from the Corinthian church come to Paul at Ephesus, and they bring a list of questions. The church has some things they'd like Paul to, to instruct them on. They have these questions, and maybe within those questions there are some challenges. They're challenging Paul. They're pushing back. But also they describe some other things that the church hasn't written about, but they say, you know, brother, this also is going on. And so Paul responds to this delegation. He sends them back with the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is actually the second letter he's written to them. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter, okay? You following me there? And... He sends that letter back, and probably Timothy seems to accompany it also. Still have a personal representative from him going with the letter. And Timothy comes back, and the news is not good. They have not, not everyone has received this word well. And so then Paul determines he needs to make a what he calls a painful visit because it's a confronting visit. He makes this painful visit. He refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, he had planned originally to go to go from Ephesus to Corinth, to go up to Macedonia, then back to Corinth again on his way back to Ephesus. But the first visit becomes so painful and so confrontive, he doesn't want his presence to stir up further trouble and hurt, and so he doesn't return by Corinth. He goes directly back to Ephesus from Macedonia instead. And then after that painful visit, he sends a severe letter. This is letter number three. So this would be 3 Corinthians if we had all four letters in order. He writes a severe letter addressing this sharp conflict. That letter is carried by Titus. And, and um, Paul expresses great optimism to Titus that God is going to work here. They're going to receive it well. Titus is like thinking he's carrying this letter into the lion's den, right? What's going to happen now? This thing's going to blow up all over the place well paul is eager to hear how things are at corinth he can't wait for titus's reply back T- titus's report back as to what has happened in corinth after this after this severe letter and so paul goes from ephesus up to troas And then he can't wait there. He actually crosses over into Macedonia. Even though there's a great persecution happening in Macedonia, Paul goes into the trouble because he's so anxious to meet up with Titus coming back, and he wants to hear how things are going at Corinth. How do they receive it? Titus comes back, and he is overwhelmed with joy. He can't believe the change of heart that God has brought about in the midst of this very difficult, apparently, situation. And so from there, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. As a result of that great report that he describes here in chapter 7, Paul writes this letter. So interestingly enough, we have two key letters that are very practical in terms of what we do in church together, how we relate together. And we have these two letters for the church through the ages because Paul was tenaciously willing to engage with the Corinthian church in terms of this correction in the midst of this conflict. He would not let go. There's something of how God pursues us the way that Paul pursues the Corinthian church. And I say that because there's an example for us as we put together some of the pieces of that as we read through this letter, there's some examples for us not to give up. Easily we move on. And Paul could have done that too. But we, we dare not give up on one another. Let's open our Bibles and read 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using the church Bible in front of you, you'll find us on page 967. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. 2 Corinthians or 4 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hear Paul's tone for these people, that there has been this ongoing conflict, there's been this distance, there's been this tension, and yet hear his tone for them. And here are some of the back and forth that he refers to along the way. It says, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. But by saying that, I'm not saying that you have. He said, I'm, I'm just, I just want you to know that you are in our hearts. To die together. To live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you here in, in writing this. I have... Great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. In the midst of that persecution, the Macedonian church is experiencing. It's referred to further in chapter 8. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not not regret it. Although I did regret it, but I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, guilt, separation, shame. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what what punishment. They took action at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made, To him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Boy, there is restoration. There is a renewed fellowship, and we're going to see in the next couple of chapters a renewed partnership in the gospel together for the sake of others that has emerged out of a very difficult situation. Paul won't let go. He won't let go of them for them. There will be conflicts. There will need to be confrontation. We see that in Paul and Peter, Paul and Barnabas, even in these letters. But how will we respond to those when it comes? First of all, what Paul has done in this process, what he's longed for all along is he has pursued God's joy since we have these promises. He opens his heart to them. and he, he describes that clear conscience. He describes the easy burden of a clear conscience. And oh, that were always the case. I got caught up short early in the week because I didn't get far into the chapter and I realized I cannot say what Paul has said here. In a particular circumstance, I wish I could say that I haven't wronged anybody. That I haven't led anybody further off in the midst of the thing. Easily, in the midst of a conflict, we can rally others around into one side or the other, can't we? Easily, in the midst of a conflict, we can even exploit or take advantage of somebody else's sin or wrong, somebody else missteps, and we'll take advantage of that to to push our own agenda. Paul says, I haven't done that. If the case comes along, and you have, own it early. Nothing removes guilt. nothing removes the hindrance of sin. The obstacle to fellowship that sin will always be nothing removes it like confession. Own whatever you can. sometimes there'll be the case that that um, things are brought against you and and there's much there that's said and it's a it's a It's a mountain out of a molehill, really. Own the molehill. Own whatever you can. Nothing dissolves animosity and removes a hindrance between, like the confession of guilt and an asking of forgiveness. Likewise, something we can get out of Paul's words here, Paul's plea to them, open your hearts to me. We have nothing against you. Don't defensively assume the motives of someone confronting you are suspect. Don't assume that because they dare to speak to you, they are out against you. Maybe they are so for you that they are willing to speak up. And even if somebody's motive or method, how they went about it, isn't as pure as Paul, what can you still learn or benefit from what they see or perceive? Maybe they still see something about you, or maybe they perceive something, or maybe there's a perception. Maybe your actions were not wrong, but there's a perception that's being created that you needed to know about. Don't let someone else's willingness to confront you or correct you become a wedge between you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Assume they seek your good, not your harm. But... On the other side of that, we earn credit to critique, don't we? What what basis have I given this person or that one to believe that I genuinely have their best at heart, that I am actively for them, that I have given for them? This is something the kids often don't see, right? Okay, I talk to the parents for a minute there? And they don't get it yet. Don't worry, they'll get it when they're 30 or 40, Okay. They don't get it yet, but you have given yourself to them and for them. And you you also have the right to correct and to direct. And hopefully along the way they'll see it without you being that stereotypical uh, guilt-tripping Jewish mother, you know. I labored over you. I gave you birth. I travailed in labor for 18 hours. What do you mean you... It doesn't take that kind of guilt trip, and it shouldn't. But in the midst of... In the midst of the, one of the best ways to be able to advance correction is when you've already demonstrated. You have given yourself for them. That again goes back to how does discipleship happen? It happens life on life in smaller groups where we know one another, where we're for one another, where we have prayed for one another, where we have borne one another's burden. So then we have earned credit to critique and to be involved in even the faults of one another. Pursue God's joy by being willing to engage for the spiritual progress of others. See, that's where God's joy emerges in this chapter. It emerges in the spiritual progress, not the status quo. This quote really grabbed my attention. I I included it in the BP Blast, but so you don't have to look it up again there. Let me read it. All too often... The church is emaciated. We are desperately, urgently starving, poor, and thin, and weak when it comes to experiencing deep and lasting joy in the midst of adversity. He says, we don't have, all too often, we don't have real, genuine, lasting, enduring joy in the midst of adversity. Why? Because We no longer gain our identity by living within the community of faith. What we love, and therefore what we get excited about, go Seahawks, right? What we love and what we get excited about is no longer wrapped up in the progress of God's people. We're too wrapped up and busy and something, anything else. That won't bring real joy, especially in the midst of trouble and adversity. Paul could have great joy in the midst of this Macedonian persecution because of what God was doing in the midst of people, in the midst of this church, as well as in the church in Ephesus. Rejoice in the spiritual progress of others. Find God's joy there. Engage in it that you can rejoice Because of it. Paul ran toward risk. Paul ran even to Macedonia in order to follow up with them. This part of our Bible, this book in our Bible is because Paul did not let go. And imagine, if this has been spiritually strengthening for the church over the last 2,000 years, we don't know. That just goes to show that we don't know what difference it will make if we are willing to, A, take the chance to give direction or correction when it's needed in love with grace. And we don't know the difference it'll make in the lives and the hearts of others and the encouragement to keep going when we receive direction or correction, when it comes, when it was needed, hopefully with grace and love. Maybe a little rough around the edges, but still receiving that and accepting it as from God, not merely man. Imagine the joy that can be experienced together and a new partnership that's going to grow in their ministry together here in Corinth and Paul because of it. Paul dares to think so well of them that they're going to indeed respond to God's word. He commends whatever he can command, and we learn something from there. It's one thing to find fault. The old basic model used to be, they taught me this in the Air Force, it was very, it's very formulaic and I don't, I don't advise you to because all you do is alert people that something's coming. You, you, always, you, you always find two things to commend before you cr- give that one word of criticism, that one word of correction, right? Always two, c- c- commend two things and then you can lay it on them, right? Well, often the two things of commendation are just sort of the preamble. They're just the getting warmed up so we can get to the good stuff. And uh, people see right through that, and, and, and the commendation is only then, those words of praise are only just getting them, getting their defenses up for what's coming next. But sir, what about if we just have a habit of encouraging one another, building one another up, commending what can be commended, so that when need for correction or direction comes, It's it's given and received in an atmosphere that has been encouraging and supportive. Another way to cultivate that credit for correction in advance. On the other hand, if I'm receiving, don't let guilt or shame get in the way. Don't let remorse remain in the way. Don't let it be a shame that causes you to withdraw, but rather... There's a word from God here that I need to respond. And I'm going to dare to take a step into that responding. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to confess. And as I do, I experience joy and I experience the renewal of that relationship. I've seen this play out a couple of times this week in ways that have thrilled my heart. Don't dodge godly grief. Whether giving or receiving. Be reluctantly willing to confront, as, as, as is described in, 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 in verses 8 eight through 10. He said, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. It was a severe letter, and yet I don't regret it. It needed to be said. You needed to hear it. It was desperate. It was urgent. Much was at stake. The, the, the spiritual good of yourselves and others was at, stake, was at stake, he says. So he's willing to confront. You know, if it doesn't cause you some concern or nervousness, you're probably not ready yet. A situation and my personal concern and my personal passions will easily drive me to action or words. But spiritual concern will drive me to prayer. Spiritual concern for somebody else in the midst of what's going on will cause me to pray for them and for the situation and for myself and what can I say, what should I do? Often things, we had a saying in Africa, more light, less heat. Often things go to more heat and less light if we act first, if we speak first before we have prayed. Lord, what would you have me to do? don't dodge godly grief. Don't dodge. Don't, Don't withdraw. Don't say, well, that's for somebody else to do something about. If I have the relationship, maybe it needs to be me. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, Galatians 6 says. Are you spiritual? Say, well, I don't know. What does that mean? How spiritual do I need to be before I can, you know, say something to somebody else? I, I, I probably, I'm pretty spiritual, but I, I'm probably not quite spiritual enough to have to get into that confronting another thing. So I need to leave that for somebody else. And yet, we are indwelled by the Spirit of the Living God. You who are spiritual is simply Paul wasn't saying that the that those in the Galatian church, they were the epitome of spiritual maturity. What he's saying that to the extent that you will yield yourselves to the indwelling spirit within you, you are spiritual. So then restore one another. Consider that confrontation as caring enough. And when somebody brings something to you, then, to go back to the other side again, when somebody brings something to you, then I will receive that. Like I mentioned, I, I, I told the children, this is, they're demonstrating to me that they care enough to confront me. They care enough to bring it up. They care enough to take the chance that this could get at best uncomfortable. Don't take it personally. Take it spiritually. Don't try to, out of guilt, compensate for what you did now. Instead, leave any guilt that comes up. Leave any, any, any fault that emerges. Leave that at the cross. Let that be a basis for you to revel again in your redemption. To remember again, to stand again in your forgiveness. That's one of the beautiful things about confrontation. One of the beautiful things about a fault revealed is it reminds us again of our need for a Savior. Sometimes, sometimes Christians in church can begin to smell. It's kind of like that sponge in your kitchen sink. We sit and we soak and we sour. And now and again, somebody needs to come along and squeeze that sponge out. Wash that sponge again. They say once a week, put it in the microwave and kill all the germs. I suppose that gets very hot and it's painful for the sponge. But desperately needed, lest it smell and you cast it aside. Don't dodge godly grief, but rather give joy and grief to one another. Verses 12 to 16 again. See beyond the issue to the impact that it has on the spiritual life of others. In verse 13, we saw how, how Titus himself, Titus is in a sense an innocent bystander, but he is wowed at what God has done here. He knows the odds, he knows the issues, and yet look what God has done in restoring together again. When I am able to confess, And admit wrong in the midst of my selfish pride, that is the evidence of the Spirit of the living God working. When somebody has the courage to risk confronting, Instead of withdrawing, I mean, Paul could have done a lot of other things, right? Paul is in the midst of Ephesus, and there's great things going on there. It's an awesome work. He stays there for three years, but he can't remain there the whole time. He's got to keep shuttling back over to Corinth, and he's writing letters because he won't let them go. It would be so easy for Paul, wouldn't it? To just say, you know, things are really good, Ephesus. Wow, we have turned the whole society upside down. They're burning magic books, and people aren't buying the idols anymore. In, in fact, there's going to be this uproar in the, in the economic sector because nobody's buying these silver shrines any longer. Paul has made a huge impact. God has used him in Ephesus, and he could easily say, yeah, Corinth. Yeah, that was that last church I ministered out at. It's, it's not going so well there now. He won't. Let them go. He insists that they maintain, they be maintained as part of the body of Christ together. I'm not going to willingly lose that leg. That's Paul's mindset here. He won't let them go. And it affects him, it would affect them, it also affects Titus, it affects others around. Titus is overwhelmed with joy as a result of this. You know, by not making a deal about something, We can de-emphasize our own brokenness. We can de-emphasize then God's restoration of us and his willing, happy, gracious restoration of us. Look what God will do, completing his work of holiness in us. We can de-emphasize that. We can withdraw from that. Even as Paul could have withdrawn from Corinth, he could said, you know, I'm going to stay over here. Or, you know, I think I'm just going to take a trip to the beach. There were a lot of nice beaches around there there in the Mediterranean where Paul was. Lots of nice beaches there. Many places he could have gone. Where does he go? Into Macedonia looking for Titus, looking for news. Where does he go? Hurries, a quick trip to Corinth. Right into the midst of the conflict again because they matter to him. We need to be willing to do that for one another. And if somebody takes that risk, look for something there that you can embrace and receive, especially if it's somebody that you know you ought to be able to trust and hear something from. A conflict, in light of our shared brokenness, a conflict doesn't just reveal something about them or a situation, the conflict and how we respond with it reveals something about us it reveals something in us and that's what they have that's what that's what Paul describes concerning them that your earnestness it says in verse 12 your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God that they became more aware of something they needed to know and that they respond to that and they step forward in that and they experience their own walking further with the Lord, a seriousness with him about their spiritual life themselves because they're willing to respond to what Paul has said to them. Receive correction as an opportunity, an opportunity to live in forgiveness. If you're wrongly accused, then it's an opportunity to allow the genuineness of your faithfulness to be evidenced in the spotlight of scrutiny. So we can receive on either side. doesn't matter what. Were they wrong? Was it a misperception? Whatever. We can welcome that because God is at work. But the fruit needs to be that love and shared joy together. That's what we're pushing towards. And if pride is in the way, if my reputation, if my standing is in the way, we won't get there. If, if uh, my hurt feelings get in the way and they shouldn't have treated me like that, we won't get there. I can't help but think, as we've talked about these things, there are things in your minds. There's a situation, there's a circumstance, there's a person. Perhaps there's a church somewhere in the background where it was easier or maybe in the midst of the herd, it felt necessary to withdraw instead of engage. I want us to bring that situation, that circumstance, that person maybe. I want us to bring that before the Lord now. Let's ask him, Father, would you point a way towards healing this? Would you point a way toward extending both confession as it's needed as well as forgiveness where it's needed? That we'd own whatever we can and we graciously receive whatever we should. That this would affect us and one another together. And we don't even know who else like Titus. As we do. Let's pray. Father, would you, Lord, in the midst of uh, that memory, Lord, one situation or circumstance that is in a mind right now, Father, would you give direction about how to respond? Maybe it's laid there a while untouched, but it still lingers because it's remembered this morning. Lord, it may be that there's nothing more to do now but just lay that before you. Maybe there's a word that needs to be said to another. Maybe there's confession and forgiveness sought. Maybe there's even now just receiving and expressing gratefulness that somebody dared to, to share what they saw or perceived. Father, maybe it's that we need to pray the prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my mind, know my heart, try me and know my mind, see if there be any wicked way in me, and then lead me in your everlasting way. Father, we want to walk together with you. We don't want to do that merely keeping the peace We want to do that pursuing your joy together. Even if there will also be grief mingled with it. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.